The Washington Post reported this headline, Nigel, the words, the world's loneliest bird dies next to concrete decoy he loved. Nigel is a handsome gannet bird that was uh, living on a desolate island in New Zealand called Mana Island. He was lured to this island five years ago uh, by conservationists and environmentalists and volunteers that wanted to start a gannet colony on this island because there hasn't been one for 40 years. So they placed uh, concrete decoys of gannets all over the cliff sides and the mountain sides of this island. And then they pumped uh, the gannet mating call on loudspeakers all through the island out into the atmosphere, and they waited. Well, Nigel accepted the invitation. Uh, He arrived on the island in 2013, but he had none of his brethren join him. Nigel became enamored with one of the 80 fake birds on the island. Uh, I think it's safe to say he loved her it. Um, He built a nest for her it. Uh, The article says he groomed her it. Literally, he groomed her chilly concrete feathers year after year after year after year, end quote. Well, Nigel died next to her. Conservation ranger Chris Bell said, whether or not he was lonely, he certainly never got anything back. (laughs) It's hard to keep a straight face reading this. And that must have been a very strange experience, but they're pretty serious about this. I think we all have a lot of empathy for him because he he had this fairly hopeless situation. Now, before Nigel died, the conservationists and the volunteers of this island had a nickname for him. Do you know what the nickname for him was? No mates, right? Nigel, the no mates bird. Here's my point. I started thinking about Nigel, and I started thinking about this deep, deep fear that's pinpointed in every single one of us, and maybe it echoes into the created kingdom. So much so that a bird is willing to convince himself or live with something that doesn't even exist just so he doesn't have to be alone. I think the book of Revelation is tapping into the deepest cosmic fear in the human race. And it splinters out into other fears. It's like this is the root of all fear. There's this root of being all alone. There's this root of cosmic separation. We would call it death another way. And the writer of Hebrew says there that the whole world is enslaved to this fear. Maybe even the animal kingdom. Being all alone is, quote, as the article said, a fairly hopeless situation. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the large day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a 
in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Lacedosia. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like the burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his office and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Give word, give power, uh, give a vision of you that takes our breath away. We ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so Revelation is written to anxious people, right? Fearful people. This is why John says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the revelation, or in the tribulation. Do you see tribulation? Uh, it means uh, distress, it means affliction, it means suffering, it means pain. <laughs> but notice John is not saying, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulations. He said, in the tribulation, definite article, single, the tribulation. This means John's not talking about a snapshot of pain, John is talking about a period of pain an age of pain, an epic of pain. In other words, Revelation is saying we live in a world of pain. You and I live in a world of pain called the tribulation. There really are monsters under our bed. All the snapshots of pain exist in our life because there is a period of pain in which we all live in. And so Revelation wants to give you and I a pain lens, literally a pair of glasses to help us see in the midst of our pain. And one of the things that's really, really important is if we don't look through this pain lens right at the beginning of the book, whatever the tribulation is, because there are a lot of crazy things being said about the tribulation. This is a time period that exists right now. And if we look through this lens, if we don't look through this lens, it's going to get real personal for us. Look in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, notice that all those things are in Jesus. But also notice, look at the patient endurance. 
This is a picture of standing amidst pain. This is a picture of not advancing in pain, not denying your pain, not even stuffing your pain, not ignoring your pain, but standing amidst your pain. The opposite would be falling down amidst your pain. The opposite would be not able to stand up. The opposite would be that pain hits so deeply in the core of your being that it implodes you from the inside out and you collapse. You get decreated in the midst of pain. If we don't put on Revelation's pain lens, when we face pain, we're going to miss the endurance that's needed to stand up amidst it. I want you to look at the kingdom now. This is a picture of the kingdom that's already all around you, even amidst your pain. Remember for Elisha's servant, it wasn't the fact that the angels were not there. It was the fact that he didn't see them. And Elisha says, oh, God, open his eyes, and then he sees them. The kingdom is just like that. The kingdom is all around us. It's unseen realities that are there. They're there. We just don't see them. If we don't put on a pain lens, if we don't see that we live in a period of pain (laughs) called the tribulation, When specific snapshots of pain come into our life, we will miss seeing God at work amidst our pain. Please hear me. Revelation is not saying God is at work in your pain only if you see it. So you better see it or you're doomed. Revelation is saying God is at work in your pain whether you see it or not, but it's better, so much better if we see it. Because if we see God at work in our pain, there is a pushing into our life and endurance, a standing up amidst it. There's a pushing into our life, a kingdom of realities that we don't see, but then we do, and actually pushing hope into your life, pushing courage into your life, give you the ability to even see things possibly from a different angle, even amidst your pain. So seeing God at work in your pain really does matter. And that's why John continues. I want you to look at verse 9. He keeps going. He's going to give now a specific example, a snapshot of pain within the period of pain that they all live in. We all live in. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Here it comes. Here's the specific example of my pain, John is saying. I'm on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God that is the testimony of Jesus. Okay, now Rome at this time had a very worked out uh, God and country policy. Here it is, the gods, particularly Jupiter, favored Rome as favorite nation status and gave Rome the power to be the superpower of the world. Uh, Roman peace, Pax Romana, was the belief that Rome held the world together, that Roman peace meant global unity, Roman peace meant no wars, Roman peace meant no barbarians, Roman peace meant no darkness, Roman peace meant no chaos, Roman peace was unity and love and everyone getting along in the world. Domitian was a Roman emperor at this time. He was the Caesar of the day. Historians say this about him. At Jupiter's command, Domitian rules for him, the blessed world. He rules the whole world under the God of Jupiter. 
God appointed Caesar, Domitian, to do this. Another one said, he's the ruler of the conquered world. Another says, he's the world's sure salvation. He's the blessed protector and savior. Unbelievable. This is our language. This is the, our language. He's the salvation of the world. He's the savior of the world. He rules the world. Pax Romana, order, peace, prosperity, human flourishing, no global chaos, global wars, famine, economic collapses. No, Rome is the unifying glue of world peace and world unity. Revelation scholar Daryl Johnson says Domitian was a profoundly insecure man, just like all bullies are, right? I would tell my kids, I told this first service, I told my kids growing up, I said, bullies are the most insecure people in the world, so if you ever get in front of a bully, now this is my parenting advice, this might not be yours, confront him. Now we're going to do some parenting stuff here later on a Wednesday night in a couple of weeks, and we might flesh that out a little bit. But right now, he says he's a profoundly insecure man who lived in morbid horror of being overthrown. To compensate for his insecurity, he demanded that all his subjects throughout the empire worship him as Lord and God of all. Quote, the worship of Caesar was the glue that held the empire together. So Domitian murders 40,000 Christians. John's put on an island, and historians think he was put on an island because he's the last of the apostles. If you take the last, and martyr him, it could spur a greater movement. And so they didn't want to do that, so they put him on a pile of rocks and made him insignificant. So I want you to feel the force of what's going on in the world at this time. Every single apostle, every leader of the church has been murdered except for one. He's put on an island, and he's absolutely useless. The whole church is in, is in a panic attack. The church is being slaughtered. The church is absolutely insignificant. The church is on the verge of absolutely being wiped out. Everyone's hiding for their lives. Everyone's gone underground. Your job is at threat. Your economic security is at threat. Your kids being ripped from your, from your families are a threat. The whole pulse of the Christian community is not just a low-grade anxiety. It is 103 fever of fear. Suetonus, an ancient historian of this time, wrote, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Maybe this will get, get our attention. Christians were seen as the terrorists of the Roman Empire, that they were anti-Caesar, anti-God, anti global unity, anti-global peace. They were pro-darkness, pro-global collapse, pro-undoing the glue that held the empire together, anti-anything good and true and beautiful and wonderful. They were a threat to the kingdom of Rome. After only 90 years, at this point, in this place in Revelation, the church, Christianity, is failing. 
Where is Christianity failing in your life right now? In your marriage? In a child? Is it failing in your loneliness? And a deep personal struggle? Is it failing in your sense of doom or your overworry about national news and world events that are going on? Just wringing your hands and dread. Is it in a daily anxiety that you experience? In fact, you ask yourself, I wish I knew what the source was. I can't find it. I just live with this low-grade anxiety day after day after day. Has Christianity, is Christianity failing you there? Is Christianity failing you in your lack of ministry? I mean, you want to be used by God. You want to be used in your family. You want to be used with your neighbors. You want to be used at work, but you just don't seem to be used. Is Christianity failing your experience of evil? The intruder, the abuse you've experienced, uh, the hurt that your child has had at the hands of another? Or how about the noise in the attic? Maybe it really is Annabelle. Right? I mean, you think I'm, you think I'm kidding. Wait till we get further into this book. Seeing God at work in your pain really does matter. Do you know what God's answer is to what's going on in that church? What's God's answer for John on a pile of rocks, an apostle? What's God's answer for all the churches that are living at this time? What God's answer is to Christianity failing everywhere? What God's answer is to Christianity failing in your life? What God's answer is to Christianity failing in Waco, failing in Central Texas, failing in the world today? His answer What is it? Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that interesting? He's in the Spirit. This is Sunday. Is Sunday a special day? Let's see. What's better? Having a quiet time alone in your room on Friday or going to church on Sunday? John says, Sunday that God in an extraordinary, special way has set this day aside to move, to be active in your life. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. When trumpets sound in the Old Testament, it was always the announcing of God's arrival. So in other words, God is coming. Verse 11, saying, write what you see. In other words, sight before human response. Again, you're going to see it. You're going to write down what you see and put it in a book and send it to the seven churches. So notice, whatever we're going to see next, whatever the answer is to a period of pain and snapshots of pain in anyone's life, whatever the answer is, it's going to turn into seven different messages to seven different churches with seven different multi-conditions and multi-fears and multi-states and multi-needs. In other words, one vision is going to be enough for everybody. 
One vision of whatever we see next is absolutely enough for each church in their specific condition, their specific needs, their specific fears, their specific problems and states. One vision is going to be enough. That, <laughs> that's so breathtaking, y'all. In other words, we, don't have, we can get real single-minded. When you are in the tribulation, which we are, and you are experiencing the snapshots of pain, your greatest need is whatever this vision is. It's not more money in the budget, although I would like that. It's not adding more staff. It's not a task force on a new program. It's not a biblical principle that you put to practice in your life. It's not even praying more. It's not even a new spiritual discipline or doing old ones. It's seeing something. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. And this is breathtaking. I was so glad what Colin, if you're not in the God's will, it is a fantastic class. You want to get in that class before it's over. This is not an, what's going to happen to John is not a mystical experience with inside of him because he had to turn and look outside of him to see it. Do you see this? It is something outside that impacts him, something outside that he sees, something outside of himself that he experiences. This is not him experiencing some, mm-hmm, uh-uh. If you know, if you're in that class, you know what that means. It's not something inside. It's something completely outside. So how do you see a voice? How do you see a word? So the answer to a period of pain, the answer to the snapshots of pain, the answer to what the church needs, you and me, our neighbors, our city, our central Texas, te uh, and beyond, our specific multifaceted needs and fears and conditions, the answer is to see Jesus. The answer is to have a breakthrough with Jesus. Or we could say it this way. The answer is to have an apocalypse with Jesus. The answer is to have an uncovering with Jesus. The answer is the box, the lid being taken off the box and what's inside being revealed. Jesus. The answer is revelation of Jesus. That was my wife. What was that? No? Okay. I'm just saying. Eugene Peterson says it this way. Revelation is, first of all, a proclamation by and about Jesus Christ. It is the only way revelation can be read sanely. It is the only way any scripture can be read rightly. Everywhere and always we have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without this controlling center, the Bible is a mere encyclopedia of religion with no more plot than a telephone directory. Now, what John is specifically seeing, we're going to look at, all right? He experiences Jesus. He sees Jesus. But what he experiences and what he sees is absolutely impossible to manage. We cannot microanalyze the details of the images or the symbols. It would be like trying to unweave a rainbow. You just can't do it. It's meant to be seen as a rainbow. It's meant to be seen in its parts as a whole. The experience, the encounter is meant to be seen in its totality, in its comprehensibility, not breaking it down into micro 
analysis because if we do, then we lose the impact of it. So I'm going to give two preliminary directions on how to even look at this thing, and then the goal is going to be that we just experience Jesus in this rainbow that's revealed, okay? Here's the directions. All the images, all the symbols point to a human heavenly hero. Verse 13, a son of man. The Nicene Creed would say it this way, very God, very man, both in one person. There's not one inch going in one direction. It's both very God, very man. So all the images are infused with very God and very man. Every single one of them. There's not a there's not a distinction of one or the other. There's not one pushing more towards man, one pushing towards God. It's always both at the same time. The second thing, all the images and symbols point to his active presence. I mean, look at this. Verse 13, where is he? He's in the midst of the churches. Again, the, the lamp stands for the churches. The seven stars are going to be the seven angels. Those are the only two things he tells us about. The rest were on our own. Jesus is actively present in the church amongst his people. Notice he's not above us looking down. He's not outside the church looking in. He's among us. He's actively moving and working in your life. The first picture we see of Jesus is him on the move in your life. So he's in the midst of your marriage, in the midst of your home. He's in the midst of your work, in the midst of your school. He's in the midst of your relational conflict. He's in the midst of your anxiety. He's in the midst of your conversation with your neighbor. He's in our midst, moving and working. And that's why each message of the seven letters, each message is going to begin, I know, I know. I know what's going on in you. I know what's going on with you. I know what's going on all around you. I know because I'm here. Jesus is actively present in our life right now. This is reality, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it. This is reality. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. So how is he at work? Like, what's he doing? Okay, he is among us, but what's he doing? Well, that's what the rest of these images are going to do. They're going to show us what he's doing when he's in our midst. Each of the symbols, each of the images are highlighting how he's actively present among us. I'm just going to, I have to take a stab at it. I'm going to take a stab at it. Here's the first image. He's actively at work in your life with healing grace. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, he's in the midst of the lampstands, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. In other words, Jesus is our high priest. Now, don't miss this, y'all. Jesus is a high priest He's walking in your midst as a high priest, which means that your number one need and your number one dislocation, your number one issue in your life is sin. Because he comes in the image of a priest. And a priest's number one job is to deal with sin. 
And so the first way we see him actively involved, this is the Christians, this is the church. So do you see how detrimental it is not to know that you're still a sinner when you're a Christian? Jesus is actively moving around in our messy lives as a priest, dealing with the dislocation, dealing with the fears, dealing with the multi-forms and multi-pains of our sins. Notice that if he wears a belt around his waist, so if you have a priest and he wears the belt around his waist, he's getting ready to do work because it's like it's work time. He's getting ready to do a task, getting ready to accomplish something, getting ready to perform something. But if the belt is around the chest, the work is already done. It's finished. The sin work is over. He's a priest moving in your midst, moving in your messy lives with a finished work, your sin and all its multi-forms and all its multi-breakdowns and all its multi-needs and all its multi-consequences are dealt with. When you, when you take this priestly sin work and you mix it with the other images that are here, especially the image of purity, the image of perfection, the image of beauty, that's where the white comes in. He's not that I, when I first read this, I'm like, okay, Jesus is an old man. He's got white hair. No, it's not that Jesus is an old man. It's that Jesus, the white, his hair is white as wool. Verse 14, his hair is like snow. When Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says there's no Greek word. So the Greek word tried to say he was bleached whiter than white. In other words, he was the clean, <laughs> perfection, blinding righteousness. In other words, he's the way things are supposed to be. That's why you have the fireness in here too. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His face like the sun shining at full strength. When priest and purity mix, you have a Jesus that's actively in your midst, moving around in your messy life with forgiveness and acceptance based on the righteousness, the cleanliness, the white of his own righteousness. In other words, we don't have a righteousness, he does, but now that righteousness is our righteousness. And when he walks in our midst, he is healing you with his righteousness and with his forgiveness and with his priestly work that's already done. It's over. He moves around your life with healing grace. Do you see that he's also actively present in our life with an emboldening control? Do you see that? Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. This is basically saying Jesus is your control. So Jesus is your priest, and Jesus is your control. Every single person in here has control issues. 
Even those of you that are passive in personality, we just call it passive-aggressive control issues. Every one of us need, desire to be in control. Uh, The first century person would hear the seven stars, and they would think of the seven planets, because at that day, there were only seven known planets. Today, nine? I think one of them got demoted. All right, Pluto got demoted, didn't Pluto? Yep. So is there still nine, or is it now eight? Okay, there's eight. So then there were seven, so they weren't too far off. Uh, Everyone thought these planets, these seven stars, though, held the control of the universe, that these seven stars, these seven planets, that everyone lived under their power. And then it gets even creepier because notice that the seven stars are talked about as seven angels. These can be good angels and these can be bad angels. These can be demons and there's this fusion. If you look at ancient thought, the stars and demons had a close relationship. That's why you had You had diviners, you had astrology and horoscopes, you had people anxiously consulting the stars because there was this blend of the gods and the planets together. Why do you think we have horoscopes and palm reading and divination and all that stuff today with the stars? I never could figure that out. I'm like, why the stars? Because the stars rule over us. The stars have control, right? When you add, I mean, Roman emperors understood this. That's why around their throne and all their publication pieces and all their memos and all the little plaques they had on their desk, on their throne, they would have seven stars and seven planets because they ruled the cosmos like like the gods. And Jesus says, no, I, I hold the seven stars in my hand. They don't rule over you. Caesar doesn't rule over you. This barbarian policy of murdering 40,000 Christians doesn't rule over you. The particular mess that you feel inside of you does not rule over you. Your fears, your anxiety does not rule over you. The bad news and the bad reports you heard at church or school or on the ball field does not rule over you. I do. I'm king. I rule. And not even a demon. Don't miss what Jesus does with his right hand the one holding the seven stars. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he lays the hand that's holding seven stars. He lays his right hand on me. He touches me with his power, with his control over everything. Emboldening control. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not literally means stop fearing. It's present tense. It has a a gnomic presence to it, which means this continual reality. Stop living in fear, Jesus is saying. And we're saying, how can we? How can we stop living in fear? Fear is a weapon in the hand of the dark powers, is it not? 
Because fear deep down inside is this sense of being all alone, this deep down inside of this cosmic separation from God, from ourselves, from one another, from everything that's good. And from that place, from that fear, the writer of Hebrews says, we call that death. The whole world is enslaved to the fear of being all alone, of ultimate separation of ultimate lostness, of death on all levels, literal and non-literal. And the enemies of the dark powers, sin, shame, the evil one, death, fear is a weapon in their hands and they hold it over you. And everyone in the world lives under this fear. This is why we fear presenting a bad, bad image of ourselves to others, maybe especially to ourselves. In other words, you get discovered to be more cowardly than you ever thought you could be, but you can't face that image of yourself. You do something that you never thought you could ever do. In fact, you used to rail against that kind of behavior, and you just did it. And it attacks the very image of yourself. We fear that. Why do we lie? We fear. Why do we deceive? We fear. Fear is why we fear losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend because their love and their acceptance and the romance and the intimacy there is so needed that if you don't have it, you lose yourself. This is why we fear our bank account and paying our bills. This is why we fear bad reports. This is why we fear failure and rejection and not being wanted and being unloved because deep down at the bottom of everything, we're just like Nigel. We fear being all alone. We fear cosmic separation. Now, what if someone walks into the enemy's camp and takes the weapon of fear away from them? Fear not. Look what he says. I am the first and the last and the living one. Here it is. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I am your priest. All fear of not being good enough, all fear of personal rejection, all fear that has everything to do with your being, I took care of, takes the fear from the enemy. I am your priest. Fear not. Notice what he says next. I have the keys of death and Hades. So your boyfriend does not hold the keys of death and Hades. You're not going to die if he breaks up with you. Your bank account does not hold the keys to death and Hades. Your personal failure does not hold the keys to death in Hades. You not getting tenure is not a key to death in Hades. You not being the athlete you thought you were. You not playing the music you thought you were. It does not hold the keys to death in Hades. Jesus does. And he sets you free. Jesus says, look, I'm your priest and I'm your control. When John McNeil was a Scottish preacher, he was, and he was a Scottish preacher, when he was a child, he used to have to walk through this spooky forest that had this deep ravine in order to get to his house at the end of the day, and he would stay for school, and I guess in that part of the world, the sun doesn't shine very long, so he was, this was an everyday occurrence, and so uh, it was a scary route. There were creepy reports of wild animals in the ravine and even wilder people there. And then, of course, you can imagine the imaginations of a child 
<laughs> yeah. All right, so with great fear, he said he would literally get to the edge of the forest that he knew he had to go through and get to the ravine to get to his house every evening that he would have what we would call today a panic attack. Fear would seize his heart. His, his heart would just start racing. He would get lightheaded. He'd start sweating in the palms. It was hard to catch his breath. And this is what he said. One night, it was especially dark, but I was aware that something or someone was moving slowly and quietly toward me. Yikes. I was sure it was a robber. When a voice called out, its eerie tone struck my heart with fear. I thought it I thought I was finished. Then came a second call. This time I could hear the voice. It was saying, John, John, is that you? It was my father. He had known of my fear and he had come out to meet me. This is a book written to fearful people, and Jesus has come out to meet. 